Who's got a podcast? We do. We do. Who's got a podcast? We do. We do. Yes, we do. How did we get a podcast? That is a great question. Well, let's let's be clear. We're one of about a billion podcasts out there. So thank you for listening right now. Yeah. It's huge. Yeah. We need you. You and my mom. I'm Julie Fowdy. This is Lynn Ozawi, who you're also hearing. Lynn is my awesome friend and feature producer from ESPN and ESPNW. She's really the reason we have this podcast. <laughs> Took her two years to talk me into it. And how have you liked it so far? Actually, I I did come with my feet dragging a little bit. Um, but what we have found is you get raw and real with people on podcasts. It's not your typical sit-down TV interview, which is very different, where you it's really hard to get stuff out of them because they've got lights and a formal setting. And we're just sitting at people's homes because we go to them. We go to their homes. And you get a totally different side of people. It's been so much fun. Well, I know one of the things that you've really enjoyed, not having to shower or wear makeup. <laughs> it's true. Julie, as you hopefully know as a listener right now, is on ESPN as a reporter an Edward R. Murrow winning reporter. Oh, boom. Yep. Thank you for that. Uh, she also does color commentary for soccer. She knows a thing or two about soccer after having played on the U.S. Women's National Team. She's a great water girl. Uh, Captain, Captain America over here. Two World Cup titles, two Olympic gold medals. Did we say the name of the podcast? No. And that might be important. It's called Laughter, Laughter Permitted. Ah. So our very first guest, Lynn, I am happy to announce on International Women's Day is the soccer royalty, Abby Wambach. We all know her accolades. We know what she's done in the soccer world. And now we're seeing her in her post-soccer life, which we talk a lot about. And we also sit down alongside her with her wife, which is best-selling author, activist, philanthropist, truth teller. She's done it all, Glennon Doyle. Uh, and we talk about their relationship. We go to their home in Naples, Florida. So without further ado, we're off and running. We've got a podcast. Yes, we do. It's laughter permitted. Get comfortable listening. It's Abby and Glennon. Laughter permitted is supported by Ally. If you're paying for a service lend, you wouldn't accept anything less than great, right? Nope. Restaurants, dentists, shoot, even underwear. We research everything until we find the best of the best. What do you research? Hotels when we travel for this podcast. Very important. Donut shops. So shouldn't we do the same with our banks? We tend to stay with whatever bank we've had forever, not questioning it, often putting up with subpar service, low rates, and Ally knows you deserve better, and their mission is to be just that. The name is the idea. They're an ally for your financial well-being. With Ally, you'll get interest rates up to 20 times the national average and live customer care. When you call Ally, you can chat with a real person 24-7, even on weekends and holidays. And Ally won't surprise you with hidden fees or confuse you with fancy jargon. Ally's team actually cares about doing right by you and your money. So go to Ally.com to find out more. That's A-L-L-Y dot com. Ally Bank, member FDIC. Kick back, relax, and unwind. Let's have a good time. Enjoy in life. We're smiling so bright, talking and laughing combined. Feeling alright, get comfortable listening. It's laughter permitted. 
So we used to do set the scene every yes. time. Oh my set gosh. the scene. Set the scene. Oh my gosh. So, so I'm setting the scene. Set the scene, Emmy. Okay. So the scene is we're sitting at our little kitchenette table um, off of our our kitchen, and Honey is in the background in her crate. And if she starts snoring, you will know it. And we're about to do your podcast. Let's rewind, shall we? to how you both met because i have gotten the abigail version (laughs) i actually spent a whole month in france with her like days after we had just met yeah oh that's Uh right so i i i got got it i want to hear the glenn inside of this yes yeah okay i was about to launch i was doing about to do my first event to launch my um newest memoir yeah called Love Warrior and we were going uh to this it was a librarian's convention, right? So it's called sexy. BEA, yeah. It's a very sexy librarian's <laughs> conference in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And before the event, it was a a group of writers who were going to launch books in the fall. So there were like 12 writers in this room um because we were having dinner before the event. And um we were all supposed to be sitting at the table talking to each other. And that's, writers can't do that. Like, we can't talk to each other. It's like. They can write to each other. Right. That's why we became writers. So we wouldn't have to talk. So, so there's nothing worse. There's nothing worse than a dinner with 12 writers. Writers together. Right. I remember thinking they should just let us read silently and then we could get through this. So I was sitting there trying to figure out how to make small talk and the door opened and this one walked in the door and listen, I don't know what I, she knows that I just turned to the door and looked at her and I, all of me just said, Oh, there she is. Just like that. There she is. Like I knew in the first second, and this is very strange for me because I've never, um, I never really understood romantic love, much less love at first sight. I thought that was Mm. all just horseshit. I thought Mm -hmm. everyone was lying that it was like Disney stuff. Um, but I knew in that first minute, so strange. And also it was very strange because I had never like kissed a girl before. Like this was not an option right. for me beforehand. And so we had that evening together. Wait, were you sitting around the table together? Close to each other? Or well, she, she walked in the door and I awkwardly stood up. <laughs> because it felt like an important moment. But then I was standing up. <laughs> and everyone else was still seated. So it was an awkward few minutes. Um, she made it around the table and sat down, and then later we ended up moving to the event, and we're sitting next to each other at the table speaking, you know, because we were speaking to a, we were sitting in front of an audience, there was like a thousand people there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, also awkwardly, the book I was launching was a book about the redemption of my marriage. Mm. <laughs> so this was tricky on many Very levels, tricky. right? Which had also been just chosen as the Oprah book club book of the year. So right. this was like a big deal. Mm-hmm. And you're having all these emotions internally. Yeah. That realization, like a bad timing on all the levels. And so, um, however, it was very true and real to me. And I had been working the past five years. I'd gone through a bunch of, um, my husband, my ex-husband had been unfaithful to me my, throughout my entire marriage. I read your book. Right. <clears throat> Which was what that book was about, the healing from that. Mm-hmm. Good times. And so... Good times. Um, <laughs> it's been an easy life. 
And so Nobody said it was going to be easy. No, it's worth it. Though. No, it's the hard that makes it great. Yeah, if everyone would do it, you guys in your sports movies. <laughs> I know. It's so annoying. <laughs> sports. Club. No, I was raised by a football coach. I get it. Everything for me growing up was a sports analogy. So, um, so. I didn't know what was going to happen. We just spent that one evening together, not a moment alone. We just talked um, at that event, and I went home knowing that I had just experienced something that I would never be able to unexperience. And I had been practicing trusting myself. And so weeks later, um, without even seeing each other again, I sat down and told Craig that our marriage was over. Because I didn't know, it wasn't, I didn't know what would happen with us, but I knew I couldn't pretend anymore that that thing that I was in was, was love, right? Mm. And also because I had, I figured out that you can, you can forgive someone and, and also still not want to be married to them for the rest of your life, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know? So, and I realized I don't owe, I just, I figured out I don't owe him the rest of my life, but I do owe him honesty. Mm. So I sat down and told him that I was leaving and that it was over and that our marriage was done. And that, and then I also told him that I felt like I was falling in love with Abby. And the first thing he said, and this was three weeks after you saw her Yeah, and you hadn't actually, we'd never spent a minute alone together. We'd never saw each other after that night. And you'd only been talking on email. Yeah. Okay. Keep going. Sorry. So, but it was just so, you know, it was so crazy that I knew it was real. Because it was the first, like, I think it's like the first decision that I ever knew, that I ever made, or the first realization I ever had that I knew was from me and my heart. Because it was so opposite of what everyone else would tell me to do. You know, I had this question of like, how many decisions that I make in my life are just because other people have put these options in front of me? Yep. Right? Like, what's really from in here and what's just what the world has said? Here's what you can do. You have these, life is a multiple choice test, right? Pick this or this. But this was the first thing that was from inside that was so crazy that I knew it had to be from inside of me because I can tell you that nobody wanted me to do this, right? Yeah. You try to call your editors and your agents who are about to list to, yes. to launch your marriage redemption book and say, you know, just real quick, just I'm just going to get divorced real quick, but it'll be fine. No one will notice. <laughs> it's only on Oprah's book. Club. Right, right. No one, it'll be fine. It'll just be a little blip. Um, <laughs> I remember Abby saying that. You're like, <gasps> and her book is about the marriage. <sighs> And they're getting a divorce. Yeah. And I was like, ah, yeah. What? Mm-hmm. I mean, they were all like, oh, this is like, people are going to buy this book because it's about saving your marriage, which is not, by the way. But that's right. the, the lane they were putting it in. And nobody's going to want to buy a book about saving a marriage from a woman who's just, who's getting divorced. And I was like, yeah, that sounds like a really tricky problem we're going to have to solve. <laughs> and I you and that it didn't dissuade you. And so no. what did you do? What was your way of solving it? Oh, this, you'll love this. So everybody, well, there was layers of solving this. Okay. Yeah. There was the children, there was Craig, there was the public. Then but there professionally, was the book. Professionally. professionally in that realm. Well, listen, I had, I've done my whole career. I became a writer because it was a sobriety technique, right? Like just being honest and getting anything mm-hmm. that's a secret out into the open. I, I literally became a writer on my computer as an act of honesty, like as to save myself. Right. And that's how I've done my whole career. So I sure as hell wasn't going to stop now like my i remember my editor who i love dearly said this will be career suicide just so you know Mm. and i remember saying okay then i choose career suicide because the other way is soul suicide so i'm gonna pretend and lie like 
So anyway, they were all like, just wait eight weeks, just wait 12 weeks, just wait, wait, wait. And, um, and none of them would let me do it. And so everyone was trying to be the boss of me. And so one night I remembered, oh, I know who the real boss is of the world. So I called Oprah because she's the boss of the world, right? She sure is. Yeah. And I told her and she... Was, How rad that you can just say, I'm going to call it Oprah. Yeah, yeah. So she was like, wowza. Wow. Okay. Made a long conversation and she said, well, the truth is where we end up. We always end up with the truth no matter what we start with. So we're just going to start with the truth. Go ahead. Do it. You're right. Do it. We'll handle it. So then the next day I got to call everybody back. All the fancy New York people. Hey, guess what? And say, guess what? <laughs> oh, you guys. Oh, hey. Guess what Oprah said. And then you can imagine, everybody was like, oh, you know what? I totally thought that was the best idea also. <laughs> <laughs> the whole career ending versus soul ending. Right. What I meant by that was <laughs> tell your truth. So we Classic. came out with things slowly. I mean, I announced a divorce first. We kept our relationship private for a little while because it was so new. Do you want to hear the Abby side of it? Yeah. She was like, I've, I've met this woman that, like, I saw her at an event. It was so funny because it's so similar, right? Mm-hmm. I saw her at this event. You tell it. Yeah, I walked into the room and... <laughs> She's um, standing. I love it. And for whatever reason, Glennon is having her personal experience mm-hmm. that I don't, I know nothing about. <laughs> Right. And when she stands up and her arms outstretch, I now know that I have to go around the room to embrace this stranger. Um, and unbeknownst to her, I did a little bit of research before I got there. And I kind of um, read about some of the authors that I would meet just so that I knew what books they had and whatever. Right. And her book was uh, interesting enough to me to actually do a little bit more research about what else she's into um, I was recently sober and in her bio and in the book, um, talks about how this woman, this sober woman, and, uh, for a lot of reasons at the time, um, you know, I'm like a month into my sobriety. I was really struggling because I was writing my own autobiography or memoir and, um, I was really struggling to figure out what I needed to include about my sobriety and how to include it. And so I was like interested in her anyway. So when she stood up and opened her arms, I was like, this is different. And I I (laughs) walk around the table and she says to me, my husband loves you. My husband and children love you. Thank God. That's the first thing she says. Can I hug you? And I was like, sure. And then she says, like, something like, I need to take a picture, you know, before we leave. So then I sat down in my chair, and we were sitting apart. But I remember feeling like, gosh, why am I not closer to her? I feel like I feel like something. And I want to be more involved in her conversation. Um, there was something happening that was making me feel... Somebody just walked in. <laughs> Someone's robbing the house. Come on in. Um, something was happening that made me feel like I wanted to sit next to her. I wanted to talk to her. So right after the dinner, um, I like pushed my food around my plate right after dinner. We walked to the stage to go and do our event. And, um, 
I said to her literally in like a four minute conversation from like the dinner table room to the stage. Um, I basically was like, I just, you know, I just had some real trouble and I'm getting over my uh, addictions and I like need your help, blah, 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 blah. Um, and I didn't know this at the time, but evidently all the people in the world do this with her. <laughs> and this is a new thing for me. Yeah. People pouring out their hearts and thinking I can save them. And she said something to me that, um, that like completely de-escalated my shame. She said, Oh, don't worry about it. I've got a rap sheet as long as your arm. <laughs> and I was like, Oh, that's cool. Like, I love that she said that. Like, she just is shameless about like what's going on in her life and she's sober and feels, um, strong about that. So when we sat next to each other on stage, uh, and I listened to her speak, um, and then for whatever reason, I'm like, I, I'm pretty confident getting up on stage and speaking. I got up on stage and I was supposed to talk for 13 minutes. And, um, I think I talked for eight, which is Julie, you know, very rare <laughs> for me to talk less. Help. I'm talking. <laughs> and I can't, you can't shut, shut up. up. I think about that t-shirt at least once a day. When yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you do. That was the t-shirt we got Abby when she was on the national team as a little youngster. 2003. Uh, (laughs) Good times. Um, so yeah. So after that, um, I got home because you were so nervous. Yeah. And I don't, I, 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 I didn't have words for why I was nervous. I didn't have words for, um, why I suck so bad at speaking that night. But then (laughs) when I got home, I, I had her book and I just read her book for, um, two days straight. I'm a slow reader. So it took me two days to devour, devour her book and it was amazing. And, um, I think a day after that, she emailed me out of the blue, um, which was the best email I ever got. And what did it say? Um, uh, basically it was, I mean, it was a friendly email. It wasn't like romantic in any ways. It just said everything that I had needed to hear my whole life to maintain my sobriety and to maintain my peace. Wow. Um, she wrote about all the fears that I had never once told her about, but it's like, as if she had knew and downloaded who I was and all of my life experience and then answered all of the puzzling questions for my life in this one email. Wow. I mean, I could just tell that Abby had a lot of shame about a lot of things, but the addiction thing for sure. And I think her coming from the sports world and her being like Captain America, mm-hmm. that's a different experience than me who comes from the art world. Where like, if you tell me you're not an alcoholic, I'm like, and <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like most of us are like jacked up in many, many ways. So I just remember saying like, now you're in the real world now that you're retired and you're now you're in the real world. And in the real world, we like real people, right? Like the world's going to be okay with this. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't have to be this Captain America perfect person anymore. Like, you can come down with us and be human, and people will love you more for it, mm-hmm. which is exactly what happened. And that, and that's when you decided to include all of the, the, because I think before that, you were thinking about your memoir being sort of like a puff piece. Puff piece. Captain America. Captain puff America. Yeah. Right. She was being like Superman, and I was like, why don't you just be Clark Kent? <laughs> Right? Like, why don't you just be real? That had to be so freeing for you. Yeah, it was. One of the things she said in that is that, in that letter, is um, it's the secrets that are, that bring a lot of uh, addicts down. It's not, and the shame around those secrets. It's Mm -hmm. not necessarily booze. It's like what you're holding on to, to, and this is, I'm I'm not saying this is for everybody, but this was my experience and how I very much felt, especially because 
representing the United States and what people looked at when they saw the women's national team. Like I took that so seriously mm-hmm. that any kind of struggle that I was having, I wanted to completely bury and keep totally hidden from the public eye because I felt like that would be a, a, like a stain on the mark of the women's national team. And I would, I would rather die than bring any kind of negative publicity or negative anything to the women's national team. A lot of people think of it, I think as a stain on me, yeah. right? You're thinking mm-hmm. globally, yeah. right? Cause you were always so about the team mm-hmm. you're thinking and about that, the team's legacy and all of that. Yeah. You know, that, that, that would be your train of thought going to, it's going to be a stain on the program. I kind of came into the program in this really beautiful and unique time where you guys had really developed it. 99 had just happened. It was 2001 that I got my first cap on the national team. So like, we've got a couple years post 99 where the women's sports and, you know, I think women's soccer kind of created this women's sports movement, you know, not to diminish what Billie Jean King did, but 99 women's soccer, like that world championship team, world cup championship team, it like made women's sports popular. And so when I, you know, got on the team, I really took that very seriously. And then, you know, a few years later, when some of the women retired, like you, Jules, like it was like my mission to keep growing the game mm. and that that continued throughout my whole career so you know in 2016 when i get the dui i get pulled over i had to make a decision like how would i really respond because um now i was i felt like i was like the worst person who had represented our whole program and i felt like i really let the old the old ladies down the the original gangsters old oh, bags. Uh, <laughs> the OG um and i felt like some of the younger players that were up and comers alex morgans who were going to take this team on into the future um you know i felt like i was the i was really bringing the whole system down and it's just a, that's just so not what was happening Um, it was indicative of what what I was going through in my personal life and, um, what I had been going through in my personal life for a long period Mm -hmm. of time. So of course, getting this kind of letter from Glennon was super freeing. And I don't know, I think it like actually allowed me to truly want to embrace my sobriety rather than just having to do it because I felt shame about what I had done. Like her, her email and the letter and the words and the things that we talk about on a daily basis are like complete affirmation for me that I do want to stay sober. And I have, I mean, I've been sober ever since. So it's been, it's been amazing. Yeah. So that's been how many years? Uh, two and a half now, almost three. It'll be three years in, uh, April. That's great. Yeah. Okay. But Glennon, you don't give yourself enough credit either. Like you have this gift. Mm. What's that come from? You think? Um, I don't know. I mean, I think I just, I really do like to pay attention. I mean, I think what I saw with Abby, I don't know. I think when people have a lot of shame, it's usually like the flip side of pride. Like they're the same things. They're exactly the same things. And Abby had so much pride. And she also, it's so interesting to me because she um, has more of a sense of honor than anybody I've ever met, right? Um, she was so... um I guess surrendered to the collective for so long. Like when you hear her talk about it, it would have been a stain on the team. It would, everything was so team that she mm-hmm. felt like she had to keep her mm-hmm. individual self, um, 
I don't know, hidden or just compartmentalized, right? Like not this, not the individual, now the collective. And I see that in so many women. Yeah. Right. So I will put myself over here and, and abandon myself yeah. for this collective idea, which is why there's this crisis over and over again in women when, um, the, that part of the, co- the collective part of their life is put on hold, whether for Abby, it was retirement. Um, you know, for people in the military, when they lose that, that identity and have to deal with themselves for mm-hmm. parents who like have given up themselves for family mm-hmm. and then have to, they're left with themselves. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so I saw that, which is something I see a lot in women in Abby. And then I also saw in her, she has this, it's, it's this dichotomy, like these dueling things, which is, um, one is she wants to be good. And the other one is she wants to be rebellious, <laughs> right? Like it's like the, her, her whole life is F you. I love you. <laughs> right. She that was a line in the first email. Yeah. Yes. F you. I love you. It was. Mm-hmm. I don't care if you like me, love me. You know, it's like, um, so, so I think for her, what I, what I think what I, one of the things that I wrote in that first email, which you told me felt relevant to you was this idea of like, this is not a moral issue, like addiction, alcohol, like whether you do what the world tells you to do and you're a good girl, or you do the opposite of what the world tells you and you're a bad girl, both are not freedom. If you're a good girl, you're just following all the rules. If you're a bad girl, you're just looking at the rules and rejecting them. Both are cages, right? Both, you're just responding to what the world is telling you. You're not making any, you're not using your free will at all. So this is not a moral issue. This is about freedom. Like, what do you want? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I just felt like when I looked at her, I knew every a lot of the things that I know about myself and my recovery I saw in her. Because mm-hmm. my whole life, I've been trying to figure out how not to be a good girl and how not to be a bad girl and how to be a free woman. Um, and that's what... I saw in her in that struggle. Yeah. I, I think that, um, it's, this is so indicative of who she is. Like when you ask her a question about her, she'll talk about everybody else. <laughs> Glennon has a unique, I've, I call it a superpower. She has an ability to like see things and sit in the pain of them. Mm-hmm. And she will have experienced something and is now trying to understand it on a like deep level so that she can explain it to other people on a simple level. Mm. And, and, and that's one of her gifts is she's able to explain very, um, very difficult concepts, philosophies in a simple way. Yeah. It's like the matrix. That's gotta be exhausting. It is exhausting. Thank you. I'm very tired. (laughs) She's a deeply feeling person, but I think it's what made the first part part of my life so hard. You know, it's like, um, I think this, there are a lot of people that, that are, that are highly sensitive, right? I would certainly consider myself a highly sensitive person. And I think that in our culture, highly sensitive people, you know, I know a lot of parents who are raising highly sensitive kids and they're exhausting. You know, they're the kids who notice everything, who get upset about everything, who um, kind of see the world in slow motion where everyone else can just keep going, you know? Um, I think in most cultures, these are, there are always highly sensitive people in the crew in the tribe, in the, mm-hmm. in the group, always like in, throughout the history of the world. And right now in most cultures, these are the people who are pointed out, who are a little different, eccentric. They're like the shaman and the medicine men and the poets and the or clergy, women. sorry, medicine women. And in, but in our culture, we just, everything's so based on efficiency and um, quicker and better and bigger that we don't have time for people like that. Um, so 
so highly sensitive people end up numbing those sensitivities because mm. the world doesn't honor them. Mm-hmm. And so I think that I became bulimic when I was 10 years old and was lost to addiction for so long. And I think that addiction is often a hiding place where sensitive people go who feel too much. Who want to numb it. Right. Who want to numb it because they haven't been taught that they're, that while being highly sensitive is, is a challenge, there are also great gifts in sensitivity Mm -hmm. that can be used for all the whole entire culture. Right. So these are, we are the people who are like standing on the bow of the Titanic going iceberg, iceberg. (laughs) And everyone's like, we just want to keep dancing. You know, keep the piano playing. Right, right. These are like prophet type people. So, um, so I think that what I've figured out in the second half of my life is that the the sensitivity that I have, which made the first half of my life really difficult, is also what makes me a really good artist. And I mm-hmm. think that I pay close attention because it, at my heart, I'm an artist, right? And I'm supposed to be seeing things more. I see things more slowly. Do you ever find that you, when it gets exhausting? You go back to wanting to numb it? Yeah. Well, I think that something that I w- watch her go through is there's times in which things will happen in our world and, and our world is fraught with things happening. Um, every day there's some sort of Twitter storm that's happening that we're feeling like we have to be a part of the solution and mm-hmm. it becomes really draining and taxing. I mean, there's days where she just is in bed for she'll be in bed for 24 hours and they don't happen often, but usually what happens after she gets out of bed is she's actually gone through the process of sitting inside of that kind of pain or confusion or frustration or whatever it is. And something really beautiful comes out of it Yeah, because she actually sits in it. She allows herself Mm -hmm. the time and her partner is so sweet that she also allows that time to happen. <laughs> she does and honors it. So like, here's the thing. I think people should go to bed more. <laughs> I'm serious. Like, I think we've all been convinced that we should just numb ourselves, that the atrocities of the world, oh, we'll just get numb to it. We see suffering and we're like, okay, well, we got to keep going. Mm-hmm. What if we didn't keep going? What if we allowed ourselves to have a reaction appropriate to how atrocious mm-hmm. the thing is that we're looking at? And we let it take us out of the game. I think there's something that happens when you sit inside of pain. It, it transforms yeah. into, into like we say, like turn your heartbreak into action. But you have to feel the heartbreak first. You first, can't just rush right. through it. Well, right. and she she is a perfect example of somebody who's crazy enough to think that they actually can make the difference. She sits in the pain long enough to figure out how she actually feels about it. you know, And then she writes about it, which makes her understand and know who she is better. She then actually has this, the grandiose idea that like, and this is what Together Rising started out of and was born out of, that she starts these like campaigns to raise money, these love flash mobs. I I love the the concept of the love flash mob, by the way, which is like you cap them at $25, Mm -hmm. right? And then you got to get more people to just like, let's go. You have found this wonderful, again, this superpower is a better word than gift of being able to then activate on it yeah which is hard yeah right? we'll talk about how you write through the scars so like you let things scar over before you actually put some sort of product out into the world mm-hmm. so many people think that they want to be truth tellers and they just like they they blast out their feelings all the time every single second but it wasn't mined for gold like glennon has the ability to sit with her pain so that she can mine it for gold so she knows what she's under like going gone through and understands who she is so when she puts it out it's an offering rather than a cry for help mm-hmm. gosh i could re- literally 
do Glennon's speeches. I've seen them so <laughs> often. Actually, all the time, Abby will be out speaking, and I'll look on Twitter. It'll be like, sit with your pain. First the pain, then the rising. Abby Wamba. <laughs> From stage somewhere. I'm like, hello. Excuse me. That's my stuff. And then, didn't it happen recently where I said something and somebody said, Abby always says that. And I was like, oh, Jesus. You stole that from Abby. I feel like we live under the same roof, so I don't have to like cite her every time. And all we do is, you guys, we talk about this stuff all day from morning to night, so we get to the point where we can't remember whose idea was what. That transition from soccer, which I know we talked a lot about in the actual stage of it when you were going through it and having to make this huge transition, how hard was that? And and how quickly did you guys meet? Yeah, it was super hard. So I retired in December of 15. We met in uh, May of 16. I mean, if I'm going to be truthfully honest, like the actual distance from playing the game was not hard at all. I love not playing. I I mean, I played for so many years. I wasn't particularly like the biggest um, lover of playing soccer. I like really loved the concept of team more than anything. Uh, so when, when I retired uh, and met Glennon and like kind of became like an insta mom, like it was like this incredible complete life shift and life change, which was welcomed at the time. But um if I were to split myself into like what I was so good at professionally before Glennon and then like what I was going to become after my retirement. And when I met Glennon professionally, like BG, yeah, there was like, yeah, BG and AG. Um, (laughs) I just didn't know. I didn't know what I enjoyed doing. I didn't know what I would be good at. Um, There was a lot of questions and a lot of suffering because I was so good at playing sport and playing soccer and I would, I knew that life, um, to creating like this whole different existence felt like an impossibility. Um, so, you know, I think that all people transitioning, whether it be from actual retirement from like a long career, uh, of professionalism, whatever, or going from college to the working world or just like any transition, high school, but or you're college. also dealing with sobriety issues, Yeah, right? It's yeah. not just, you know, I'm, which is hard enough for us athletes to, you know, to have to go through of yep. this, you know, Hey, I'm getting a schedule slipped under my door every day. I'm being told what to wear, Wasn't that so where nice? to go. Right. Oh, I don't have to think. I, oh, I miss that. God. that was such a good time. I actually, I actually begged our general manager as I was retiring. I said, can you please just send me like a schedule every couple of weeks? <laughs> like, you know, wash your car or something. <laughs> I will do it. Pack I the get, kids' lunches I get at shit eight. Done, but I just need to know like how to, to make right. a schedule. That was like that's actually still something that I struggle with. How uh, like actually making a schedule. I know it sounds so lame, but I was playing sports and somebody was doing it for me for so long. Um so yeah, it was it was hard. And you know, this might sound so weird. But because of the DUI and because I met Glennon um, and because I felt like, oh, 
this sobriety thing is something I can do. It actually wasn't necessarily like this source of pain. Mm. Um, it was, I, there was like a light switch turned off in me and like another switch turned on like this, this different world, this different life that I got to step into. Um, and I won't say that it, that it was easy by any means because I, there, you know, I had, I had my own sense of struggles of actually going in and figuring out what was causing the addiction. Um, and I'm still in the process of doing that. You know, I'm still fairly early on in, in the length of sobriety that I'm, I'm hoping to have in terms of lifetime sobriety. Um, so a lot was happening and I, I think that that was really a good thing because it kept me kind of busy. Uh, and then, you know, a couple years later, we, we, a year later we get mar- married and a year after that, it's like, okay, now what do I want to do mm. with my time, right. with my life? Um, and that was proving to be more difficult than I had anticipated. So the transition has been hard, but now that I kind of know what I'm doing, it's now that you got your wolf back. Yes. Way better, way easier. You know, that speech was amazing by the way. Thank you. And my wife helped me write it. So that's partly why it was so amazing. Um, (laughs) and it was such a beautiful exercise, not in professionalism, but in, in our marriage, because when we sat down every day to curate and create this, this speech, um, it was fun for me to explain to her how I felt about my life and how I had seen the interactions with teammates. And Jules, you know this, but like not everybody knows some of the things that we know because of the way that we were trained and the way that we were raised and the way that we taught each other about what leadership was. It wasn't until I was able to actually uncover some of these leadership philosophies that I just knew to be true um, and actually thought about where it began and how it began. I mean, that's why it was so beautiful that we were able to create this speech together um, not only because she was able to learn about me, but she actually helped me formulate my mm. belief systems mm-hmm. about what I knew. And, you know, she tells me all the time, like, writing is like the most important technique and tool that we can figure out who we all are. Mm. And this was a beautiful exercise for us. And it, I mean, the speech went viral and it was amazing. It's turning into a book. It's coming out in yeah, April. That's great. I know. We're really excited ab- about it. Um, and I just, I thought it was such a fun experience to be able to do with Glennon. I mean, I didn't know my words could sound so good. Um, so good. So thank you, honey. I, I, I appreciate it. I read it. it first and then I've watched it as well. And both are just so good. When you, when you read it, I was like, oh my God, you all, I like said it to everyone. You have to read this. Mm. What's next with the Wolfpack? So, the book comes out in April and, you know, we hope that that, you know, people and women and daughters and men, uh, and sons pick it up. I'm excited about the book, um, getting published because then we don't have to keep working on it. Um, <laughs> if, if you've ever written a book, I promised myself I would never do this again after the first one. And I remember now why I said that is because in the end, it's really brutal and um i'm excited for the process to be over can we talk about your book being made into a movie oh Oh, what check that one off the bucket list and we have known that for a really long time so i did um super soul sunday Mm -hmm. with oprah saw it yeah at her house in, in california and then after that she said would you like to come back to my house because they film it like on the grounds but far away for under the oaks under the oaks yeah for dinner and i was like wow that sounds terrifying like i that's not 
I'm not, I'm the introvert level 50. See, so uh, you would not know that at all by how you are. But she hides it so well. Yeah. yeah. That's exhausting. As I can well, tell I from afar. I'm like, Oh, she's hit her limit. We've got to get out of here. <laughs> yeah. We are now at DEF CON 10. Yeah. <laughs> level 10. Now. Abort. Abort. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. But my sister was with me because she always is. So I was felt brave. And we went back to her house and she, we spent a beautiful evening there. But the first thing we sat down outside and she said, um, I, would you like to make your book into a movie? The whole time I was reading it, I saw it as a movie, which was so interesting to me because the whole time I was writing it, I was writing it as a movie. And I've never done that before with my writing, but I think, interesting. I think because it was so, um, disgustingly personal like it was so intimate i was just like i felt like i was performing open heart surgery on myself the whole time i was writing that book in order to distance myself from it at all i had to think of it as scenes like oh i wasn't like write about yourself that day i was like okay now write about the day that scene where you found out where you were in the therapist's office write that scene you know my my main thing about the movie is that i think it's so easy to see that book as a marriage book and it never was like that book starts from when I was a baby to when, uh, to now. And, um, what I really don't want for this b- movie is what I didn't want for the book. I don't want it to be a Cinderella story. Like this is a story about a woman who's over time, um, tried to fit into a bunch of different categories that the world has given her in terms of faith, in terms of sexuality, in terms of beauty, in terms of mothering, all of it. And who has ha- over time found different ways to free herself from those rigid ideas and create her own faith and her own family and her own mothering and her own romantic relationship. Um, so it's that it's getting that the structure being for, uh, the story of a woman's life and not the old idea that like a woman's life becomes fulfilled when she finds the right relationship to bring it back to what happened with Abby. Like women, I think in so many ways we're, we're convinced that the way to become a successful woman is to just become selfless. Mm-hmm. and lose ourselves yeah. in other things, yeah. right? The, the better we are, the less we have a self, yeah. the better we are. And then when those things we define ourselves by disappear, whether it's family, whether it's soccer, wh- whatever it is, we are left with nothing. That's what sobriety is, by the way. It, sobriety, the reason why it was a double whammy for you is that sobriety is the ultimate being left with yourself, mm-hmm. right? That's why everybody grabs a glass of wine at five. It's because all the stuff that we've used to distract ourselves is over and we're left with ourselves, <laughs> Right. And so we're like, well, shit, this sucks. <laughs> what are these feelings and things I'm having? <laughs> I can't sit with these, you know? So yeah. sobriety is the ultimate. So I don't know. I just think that, you know, one of the things that took so long to convince Abby of was that it wasn't the soccer that made her special, right? It was like herself that she brought to soccer mm-hmm that she was then going to bring to this next, to her new family and to her new leadership thing that it was, you know, it's not purpose is, is tricky for women because purpose is not ourself either. Mm -hmm. We can get so lost in a bigger thing. And because we call it good, we think it's okay to lose ourselves in that. But then when that's over, what are we? So I I love that line. It's not what you do. It's who, it's who you are. You are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you don't have to live in fear your whole life because you bring yourself wherever you go. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Right? That's your anchor. Yeah. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. good. You're good. <laughs> You're two Jules. You guys are good talkers. But you know what I also liked is that in the book, Craig was never a villain. He's not. 
No. no. I, and you and you make him I've never met Craig, but he seems charming and kind and loving through it all. He is all and, those things. Yeah, and and wanting the best for the kids. Mm-hmm. Look, I think it's the greatest gift I have ever been given in my life um is his acceptance and love of me and the way that he has interacted with me mm-hmm. and the way that he has talked about me to these three children. It is the most selfless act for a man or a woman to um, say to the incoming quote unquote step parent or boyfriend or girlfriend that, Hey, I love them and we are going to make this new kind of family dynamic work in any possible way. Right. And it gave them permission and it, it gave, gave the them permission, permission to love me. And I mean, honestly is life all hunky dory and always perfect. Like, no, like we're, we're adults. Like, you know, we have to make schedules and it's hard and it's worth it. And I think all three of us collectively always have said that the kids and their livelihoods and their experience and their emotions are the most important thing. And I think truthfully, all of us truly believe that. I think it's the reason we're able to do it too, is because we're three people who've been through hell and who used those hellacious times to get to know ourselves better. Like we've, the three of us have done really intensive personal work Mm -hmm. in our lives. Mm -hmm. Um, and so when we get our crazy feelings about each other, I mean, I don't have like lovely feelings about Craig every day. He doesn't have lovely feelings about me every day. (laughs) Okay. We've forgiven each other and forgiveness means that 80% of the time you feel good about the other person and 20% of the time you still want to stab them. Like that's what (laughs) forgiveness is. (laughs) Um, metaphorically speaking, right? Because okay. I mean, and <laughs> sure, <laughs> whatever you say. And when she so, says some of this stuff. I'm like, I just want everybody to know that we're just kidding no, for the because, most part. No, because I want people to <laughs> know that. Part. Like, people are like, "How did you forgive? How did you forgive?" Well, what is forgiveness? I, oh, I'm like, not talking about forgiveness. Is when you want to stab the person, you don't. Yeah. That's what forgiveness but is. I, I always tell my husband, like, if I don't have that emotion, then something's wrong. Yes. Thank you. Right. The fact that right now I want to strangle you is a good thing. Yes. It means we're normal. That's right. Yes. That's I'm going right. to think it's a good thing. Yes. That's right. And that's why it's important to talk about how those th- these things actually feel. Because I'm so committed to like reminding people that life is hard, not because we're doing it wrong, because it's just messy and, and hard. Um, it was designed that way. It was designed that way. Yeah. And like, you know, I think some people look at our family and they're like, oh, why can't I? Whereas to some people, it feels inspiring that this blended family is working so well. To some people, it feels even more shaming mm-hmm. because it's like, well, why doesn't that work for me? And I think there's a few reasons for that. Number one, mm-hmm. I think it's because Craig and I never had a passionate romantic love. Mm. We got married because I was pregnant. Mm-hmm. We were... um you know, he was struggling our whole entire marriage privately, which meant that we weren't growing together. Um, we were amazing co-parents. We, our main goal, we got married for those children. See, we got married because it was the right thing, not because we were the right thing for each other. Right. We both knew that on some level. Um, and so when we, I think that my friends who I've seen divorce from, from deep, passionate, romantic relationships, it's harder in the divorce because that passion is there. And you know, they say there's like a very thin line between love and hate. Like mm-hmm. passion can't just turn off real quick. So it, it goes from, from love to rage. Mm. We didn't have that. You know, it was like we were always people who were really good at parenting our children together. And we are still that. <laughs> right. 
I also think that some of it has to do with the fact that I married a woman. There's a dynamic there that is there that for a lot of Craig doesn't see another man buddying up with his kids. You know, one other thing Oprah said to me, well, maybe it's okay with him because he can just tell himself he, it's not that he wasn't man enough. It's that he wasn't woman enough. (laughs) (laughs) Like there's a lot of reason because we've all three of us do intense personal therapy and work. And so we know what is our ego. We know how to override our feelings and our thoughts for like the greater good, because that's what therapy is really. So, you know, I would say you, maybe, maybe it's that you can have like a fairy tale marriage or a fairy tale divorce, but you can't have both. Like we didn't have the fairy tale marriage. So now we can have this like passionless co-parenting. Um, but and your kids aren't young, like, right. Right. They, they're old enough and wise enough to see all of this. Yes. Mm-hmm. How have, how have they dealt with it? Like, have they had their moments? They had to have had their moments where they're like, Oh God, this is weird or, Oh, I mean, or not, or maybe not. Well, I mean, there's, I think I would answer two different ways to that. First of all, they, the divorce for them was how it divorces for every kid. It was awful. It was terrible. It was blew their entire lives up. You know, I mean, their dad is, is, I don't know if there could be a more dedicated father than Craig Mm -hmm. is. I mean, he, is an amazing father and what they had was their family unit and to see that break up was brutal for them in every way. But then the woman thing, I mean, the what that was a less of an issue for my kids. They um so I have been kind of a raging advocate for the LGBT community for ever. And so my kids have actually been to more gay pride parades than Abby has. Oh. <laughs> That's true. We had to catch her up. Abby told me Craig and Abby play on the same team together and you all go watch. I was like, Oh my God, you guys are classic. It's strange. I was sitting with, um, somebody watching their game and Emma was sitting beside me and this woman came up and she goes, Oh, is that her dad? And I said, yeah, that's her dad. And she said, Oh, how old are they? And, and I said, I'm their mom. And then she said, so who's that? Cause Emma ran out and hugged Abby. She goes, I go, that's their mom too. And then she said, Oh, so your husband remarried? And I said, no, I did. She was just like, what? I was like, this is a long story. I'll just send you the book eventually. I don't know how to just explain watch the movie. Yeah. Is Abby going to make the movie or is it only? Yeah, gonna be she'll Love have Warrior? a little, she'll have a cameo at the end. I got to get my SAG points. Yeah. <laughs> Are you a union member still? Yeah, I'm like, Thank God. I need, I need health insurance. That's how we get our health insurance. <laughs> Do all three kids play? No, Chase does not play soccer. Chase is his, this mother's son. He doesn't he's, competition. He's the artist. No. Yeah. And he runs. He's a cross country. By player. himself. Oh. He has an introverted sport. He oh. runs. Yeah. Because I find your sideline posts to be hysterical. Yeah. Perhaps my favorite of all time was you. As official field marshal. She was it yesterday. Julie, and the shit hit the fan. I was, Julie, I was called in for a second term. What? I was reelected Wait, field marshal. You, you made it back. For the second time. You got the vest back. Yeah. To be fair, there were no other volunteers besides me. Wait, it. rewind to the first one because like literally, I don't think I have giggled for as long as I did about that post. I just kept giggling. I kept rereading it and then I'd giggle again. Okay. Can so, I set can the you, scene? Yeah, set the scene, please. Set the scene. Okay. The parents of soccer players. It is as if these people who have, were sane one hour ago just sit down. Something about sitting in those straw chairs on the side just makes everyone lose their damn mind. And, and, um, all the screaming and all the like, run faster. Like as if they haven't thought of that. Right? Like as if they forgot that running fast is important. Like all the things. And so I 
turn into a bitch on the sidelines <laughs> because in my in my attempt to make everyone nicer, I turn nasty. Okay, which this is a lot of fun for Abby. Okay, because she's just trying to watch the game. So I'm mad at everyone on the sidelines all day. I feel like I need to control everyone. I need to be the kindness police. So one morning on the way to soccer, Abby said, I just think it might be nicer for everyone involved if you just stop that. Relax about it. And so I really do often think I'm just kind of like a a self-appointed boss of the universe. Okay, I have good ideas. But I do have good ideas, right? But everyone doesn't always like them. So No, they don't. No. So so I said, okay, I'm going to do that. I'm going to stop. I'm going to take, I'm going to unappoint myself as boss. Julie, we walk onto the sidelines. Literally this this day you're having this conversation. Yes. We walk onto the sidelines and a man approaches me. The man is holding a neon vest and he says, Glennon. Would you like to be the field marshal of this game? And I said, I'm sorry, what does that mean? And he said, well, your official duties will be to make sure that everyone on the sidelines is behaving. <laughs> and this is when I understood that there was a God and that this God loved me <laughs> and also agrees I have good ideas. So I put on the vest Abby and I, I, I right feel now. that the sidelines were unbelievably beautiful that day. Do you think? <laughs> Yep. Yeah, they were. Yeah. You were wearing a shirt that was very similar to that one. Too. Yeah, that was the shirt yeah. that I was Wait, wearing. Read it, it for says, me again. Love is still the most powerful force on the planet. So mm-hmm. I was, it, we, we, we had a game of love, a soccer game of love that day. <laughs> and then two weeks later, I was reappointed. But this is the bane of all parents' existence. Not me. No parents want no. to do this job. Glennon is like, both hands raised. Yes. It's like when you stood up when Abby walked in exactly. the room. Arms Pick out. Me. Pick me. I want to wear the vest all day. I think I would wear the vest. Mm-hmm. I would put that would. vest on and I would put my love well, as the most powerful force. You had a funny first experience and Ian had to kind of reel you in, oh, right? I did. I did. I um The first game Izzy ever played in as a soccer player, I was like, I'm never going to be that mom. Right. Izzy was in a little... Like, you know, how when they're like seven, you know, they're always like mobbed together. Mm-hmm. And she was outside of <laughs> this pack and it popped to her and it was like her to the goal. And I was like, you take that ball and you run, Izzy. You just run. <laughs> and Ian, my husband looked at me like, he goes, paging crazy soccer mom. <laughs> and all the parents, cause you know, he didn't know me that well yet. It was the first game. They were like, oh my God. <laughs> Do you know what? That's another joy of the field marshal. When you put on that vest, you somehow are your best self. Yes. So it also keeps me from doing, from doing things. This. Yeah, yeah, Glennon definitely has a has. A, she's she's got a track record for getting upset at the other kids. I don't know if we need to go into that. I <laughs> know. I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's the refereeing. It's the refereeing mostly. You know, the the five dollars or ten dollars an hour that these the people, fifteen year olds. It's really uh, funny to get mad about soccer when you know nothing about sorry, soccer. Sorry, don't be mad at me. No, I'm not mad at you. We'll talk about it later. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we have a segment called Most Pressing Questions. Would you rather keep Twitter or Instagram? Instagram. Glennon's Instagram. Neither. Delete both. Okay. Last book you read. I just finished There, There. It's called There, There by a Native American author. Oh, how was it? Really good. Really good, like like a bullet fast, good. Um, this one, good and mad. I listen to that while I play golf. I love that. Also, I'm. Oh, you listen to audiobooks while you play mm-hmm. golf? Mm-hmm. 
That's interesting. That's That's a good use of time. I'm a very, very slow reader. I never really put a ton of time into reading. Like my kids literally read faster than me, like twice as fast. (laughs) Like I hear them reading out loud and I'm like, wow, they are very smart. (laughs) I'm a strong swimmer. I'm so jealous, but I can play sports (laughs) damn well. Um, And then uh, just started uh, Michelle Obama's book, Becoming. Becoming. What would you love to be the first line of your bio? And you can be anyone or anything. She was a Christian mommy blog. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The first line of my bio, I guess like wife, mother, former soccer player, current expert leader. So that's a joke. You guys didn't laugh. Okay. Got it. That was funny, honey. (laughs) We do something around our table with the kids called high-low cheer. Mm. So when we're having dinner together, we'll say, okay, what's your high of the day, your low of the day, and your cheer is someone that has done something nice for you. <gasps> so you're celebrating someone else. That's good. We're stealing it. Yeah. Yes. Totally stealing it. Totally that. stealing Starting it. it tonight. So um, we stole it from some friends. Marnie McNanny, thank you. I would like high-low cheer of your career. I think... Winning any championship during my soccer career were, are the highs. It was like the moments in the locker rooms afterwards, like, holy shit, we just did that. It took forever. Awesome us. Um, lows were anytime we didn't win. <laughs> I mean, super simple. Um, and then the cheer, watching other women so closely, other really beautiful and smart and, and successful women, so intimately and watching how they work through their lives and watching what was important to them and seeing how that they, they operated with other people and their charities or their foundations or um, their personal soccer camps or their people. Um, for me, that has been the biggest learning tool that I've ever been able to take away from the national team is just to witness other people doing their life um, and other badass women. Mm-hmm. And that has propelled me into my next life. So that's mm-hmm. kind of my cheer. Oh, I have a career cheer. So I have this dear friend who's one of my best friends. Her name is Liz Gilbert, and she would kill me for telling you the story. You guys all know this. Mm-hmm. You pray love Liz. Mm-hmm. Oh, I right. Liz. So she's I mean, I don't like, know Liz, but I know of Liz. Yeah, she's also known just, as Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. She always knows how I'm feeling, even if she's a million miles away, and says the right thing and sends the right thing. And um, and my not nonprofit one of the reasons why we're able to be so effective is that we um, ensure that every single penny that's given to us goes directly to people in need. So we do that by I volunteer and my sister volunteers. And then we have a few people who work for like less than my babysitter makes here. (laughs) Um, And they're just passionate like people that are doing this. So what Liz does is she just silently under the table sends me and I shouldn't say under the table because that's like a, no she over the table she, she over the table <laughs> sends me she checks. donates right yeah. like and it's always when things are hard and Aww. not and it's 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 just she, and she does it beca- I just got I'm saying this because it's a cheer because I just got another one she sent me this quote and she said you know what I see you as is a person who um, you know the rivers run and and the 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 the, ra- the rapids are crazy and the water's muddy and the the river runs and you just stand there and you have your sieve and you will pick up the mud and it's it's scary and it's and it, it feel like you're going to drown sometimes but the waters will slow and then you'll find that little piece of gold that's in the mud and then you'll offer it back to us so right now is the rapids and soon you'll have the gold. She's amazing. 
And yeah. she also said something recently to you that I'm so pissed I didn't say first. <laughs> I love Liz so much, but this this really got to me because it's so true. She beat me. She beat it. me to the punch. She told Glennon that more than anybody that Liz knows, and I would agree for this to be true for me too, that Glennon makes the best use of her life. Thank you, Liz, for giving us that those words. Thank you, babe. We did it, Lynn. Our first podcast episode. In the books, baby. Congrats, Julie. Aw, that was fun. And uh, we're going to do something at the end of each podcast where we talk about our takeaways. This is a nod back to the national team when, after games, we would also do takeaways about our game, our performance. We'd go over film. Uh, And my takeaway from this conversation is that modern family is amazing. And that's really what they are. I mean, for Craig to embrace it all and them to deal with it as they do, which is so hard when you're just one nuclear family to add in all those layers is remarkable. So I, um, I applaud them all for their ability to do that. And I want to have Oprah on speed dial. That's my other takeaway. Without question, if you could just dial her up when you have a big life decision to make. Hey, Oprah, it's Julie. How you doing? Good to chat with you. I thought that was amazing, that story. Especially when she would affirm what it is that you're doing, like she did with Glennon, and the fact that she essentially told Glennon to follow her heart. And We always get to the truth, so start with the truth. Great line. So those are our takeaways, but we want to know yours. So tweet me at Julie Foudy and hashtag it laughter permitted. Thanks for spending time with us. And remember, please subscribe to the podcast. So it's not just my mom listening to this. That would be fabulous. And as we close out the show, a big thanks to my friend and singer songwriter, the one and only Kate Diaz. And it's worth noting a Julie Foudy Sports Leadership Academy alum for our awesome theme music that she wrote and composed. And this podcast is made possible because of ESPN and ESPNW. We hope you enjoyed listening. And always remember, laughter permitted. And so is that singing. You take that ball and you run, Izzy. All right, that's it for us. One more word from our sponsor. The fact is only 8% of people actually trust their bank, and yet most of us never bother looking elsewhere. Ally knows you deserve better, and their mission is to be just that. When it comes to your money and everything you've worked so hard for, your house, your car, your future, are you getting everything you want? Your shoes, they're important. Give Ally a call. When you call Ally, you can chat with a real person 24-7, even on weekends and holidays. For more information, visit ally.com, A-L-L-Y dot com. Ally Bank, member FDIC.